my very best to get this job that I so crave. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Fan Zone Debate. We are here for uh, an exciting one. We got Caleb Boatman returning to the ring, uh, going up against uh, rookie uh, 1-0 player Robert Kastner. So Robert got his win with a knockout, I believe, against Jack Pinchuk. Could be remembering that wrong. I think it was a knockout. Uh, Boatman, last time we saw him, was in a wacky universe. I don't know if I actually saw it or if it just kind of like it was like one of those like flash things I was dreaming and you know, get it because the, the anyway, um, this is gonna be an exciting one. Kirk, you're here to judge this one with me. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing all right. Uh, excited for this match. Uh, both from what I remember of their last match, I think they both kind of take us had like similar opponents to get here. Uh, have a little bit of a similar path, uh, but I'm always looking at styles of competition and how they're going to clash or not clash uh, against each other. Uh, and I think you know, obviously, we have a little less experience with Robert. You know, we've only seen him in one match so far, um, but I think they're they're going to have somewhat similar styles. Um, so uh, I'm excited to see how this match is going to play out. Yeah, I should actually mention that Caleb's last match, also a knockout against Joe Harrison. It wasn't the multiverse. It was Joe Harrison. was a knockout. So, uh, Brian, you are here as well. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing great. Always glad to come do another uh, do another debate, uh, judge another debate. Uh, like Kirk, you know, I like to hear the debates, but also it's interesting to watch the styles. Uh, Caleb tends to be a little more, shall we say, high energy than, than most people. Uh, Robert seems a little bit more laid back, but, you know, I don't know. We'll see what goes on this time. Yeah. All right, so let's start by talking to the rookie, Robert. Robert, you are back after your uh, knockout against Jack Pinchuk earlier this season. You are now here to take on Boatman. What do you think? Uh, I, I agree with Brian's assessment. And by that, I mean <laughs> my goal here tonight, beyond the winning part, is to not get the Boatman wave of energy to capsize me. Meaning I don't do want that. everything to be like, in my face boatman so i will try to put up a shield and we'll see if that pays off but more than likely not it is later at night i am winding down all right fair enough uh we'll bring in mr boatman himself caleb welcome uh you got the knockout against joe last time pretty uh demanding fashion you are now here um it's a little sleepy time you're gonna be high energy what do we think have you met me? The points where I am at my most high energy are when I'm tired. It's the weird. Like, have you watched any Warzone match that hosts late at night? Hi. That's fair. That's fair. All right. Fair enough. Uh, let's get into this. This is how this is going to work. So uh, there are five, or I'm sorry, four prep questions uh, based off of categories that the players drafted. Um, and we are going to see the players tonight debate those questions before our very souls. So, um, each question, the players are going to get a one minute opening followed by a five minute free form followed by a one minute closing after which Kirk, Brian, and I will write on our handy dandy boards who we think won that point best two out of three points wins our votes wins the point and first person two, three points wins the match. Should we be tied after the four prep questions? We will move on to a bonus question. Gentlemen, any questions as we get into the match? Yep. Let's do this thing. Uh, 
All right, gentlemen, uh, we are going to kick it off with the category of directors. This was drafted by Caleb Boatman. The question is, which Albert Brooks directed film has the worst performance? So, Caleb, because you drafted this, you get to go first. You have one minute when you start talking. This was a really tough question because there's really not a lot of bad Albert Brooks performances. Um, it's I, I know I'm me saying that, but that's the truth. Uh, this is easily the worst performance in any of his movies. It is Penny Marshall playing herself in Looking for Comedy in the Muslim World. Uh, the movie opens with Albert Brooks sitting down with Penny Marshall. Uh, they want to cast him in a remake of Harvey. And Penny Marshall is supposed to kind of set up the crux of the movie of Albert Brooks as a has-been at this point. The problem is all of her line delivery feels so stilted and awkward. Like, she's playing herself. It shouldn't be that hard. But all of her funniest lines that are funny on paper completely crash and burn in the delivery because she, like, she has to talk about the in-laws remake. And that should be a funny idea. But the way she delivers them feels so stilted and awkward. It does not work. It actively ruins the movie. Time. All right. We'll move over to Robert, who has one minute to open his argument when he starts talking. Caleb is correct. There aren't that many bad performances because a lot of the performances in Albert Brooks movies are somewhat similar. The thing about the Penny Marshall performance is she's a celebrity cameo. She's ostensibly a catalyst as a plot device to get him to realize that things aren't going well. And then that leads to him going to that meeting in DC and taking the uh, appointment to go look for a comedy in the Muslim world. My pick was Rob Morrow as uh, John's brother in the movie Mother. And the reason I picked that is because it's really one note. And Rob Morrow, leading to that point, had really decent performances, even like Emmy-nominated performances in Northern Exposure, and he was in Quiz Show. But in this one, he just really comes up as the whiny child who just desperately seeks approval from his mother. There's a lot of scenes where he's just literally being shot from a camera phone. There could have been a lot of benefit him being like this, uh, being against them, but he's just sort of there and it doesn't make sense. Time. All right. Five minute free form. when he starts talking, please don't talk over each other or I will come in and beat you with a stick. Okay. Well, uh, first of all, Rob Morrow, like your, your problem seemed to be with the character, not really with the actual performance. Your problem is you're bringing up stuff about the character. The character is written as whiny and pedantic. That's kind of the whole point. It doesn't work. If he's not playing it that way, it doesn't work. That character is written that way. Ultimately, Penny Marshall is written to be funny and her line delivery does not work. That's the difference there. I think it does actually work. And there are situations where, you know, Penny Marshall's a professional actress, but at that point she hadn't been a professional actress for quite a bit of time. So you could say as a performance, you know, there's a, uh, she's, she's doing being herself and saying some things. I mean, like I said, it's not really much of a performance. It's just sort of there to be the catalyst to move him along in the story. So well, it, was accepted. it was accepted in the things. That's not really an argument. We accepted it as worst performance. So ultimately it is a performance. We accepted it in the debate. Ultimately, Penny Marshall, you're kind of basically just saying, eh, it's not that important. It's not what is the most, the question isn't what is the worst important performance in an Albert Brooks movie? It is what is the worst performance in an Albert Brooks movie? 
That's true, but I believe you're saying that she isn't really funny in that. I kind of think she is, and she's biting and sarcastic, which is what she's designed to be. Rob Morrow, on the other hand, he could have been this nice foil as a linchpin between uh, John and Beatrice and really had more of an impact as the third build person. But again, he doesn't really have any growth. He's just there. And honestly, he leaves in the last act, and he's is, he could have not even been in the movie and I think a lot of that is due to how it is that he played it. I know you're saying that there's a lot relative to how it's written, but I think if there had been a little bit more depth, he could have really stood as sort of this basis between the two of them as these two sort of uh, polar opposites. And he's really nothing. One of your points is that, oh, he leaves halfway through the movie. That's, again, that's a problem with the writing. That's not a problem with the character. That's a problem, or not a problem with the performance. It's a problem with the writing and the character. You keep bringing up things that are a problem with the writing and the character. Penny Marshall has funny lines. In-laws, why did they ever remake that? That's a funny concept, but the problem is she, she's not playing it as sarcastic or fun. It feels like she's reading them off a cue card and that she just got those lines today. It's a genuinely bad performance. It hurts the good dialogue. I mean, well, first of all, I know we're talking about performances. Uh, the dialogue itself within that scene isn't particularly like sharp anyway, so I think she's doing the best she can with what's there. Um, my point about Rob Morrow is, and yes, there's some things about the writing, but again, we'll move past that. Um, he's supposed to, there's situations where he's supposed to act as if he's superior to John. And there's one, there's points, especially near the end when he's supposed to feel inferior to John, when it looks like Beatrice is sort of shifting her focus. And I can't tell the difference between how he's acting in those situations. You would think they would be different, but in my opinion, in my estimation, they seem to be very similar. So I think that's the point within the writing of the character, though. It's ultimately, this is a guy who has always been whiny and pedantic. The problem is the sh attention has now shifted. Ultimately, he is who he is. It's Albert Brooks that has changed, not Rob Morrow. That's the difference there. And you said earlier that Penny Marshall was funny. And now you're saying, oh, well, the lines aren't really funny. So ultimately, you're bringing two different things into it. Penny Marshall, again, she's supposed to kind of be the crux of the movie. It's supposed to set up that Albert Brooks is a has-been and doesn't really work in films anymore. And ultimately, it doesn't work because she doesn't get a lot of, she doesn't put anything in it. Uh, and I don't understand because what you were saying was people can be funny and the lines can be bad. They can rise up against what the, the information is or what's going on, how it is that the scene is written. So I don't really think that sort of corresponds. Um, I do think there are situations where she plays, you said it's, it's sort of stilted, but she does play this like faux politeness and that sort of moves on to being like, well, I guess we're done here. And, and it, it goes back into a sarcastic feel. I think it does hit on that a bit. I don't think it's all stilted. I think there is a little bit of range. I don't think, for somebody who's supposed to be in the movie for a good bit, and it's supposed to be, like I said, a, a integral part, or seemingly an integral part, Rob Mar Morrow doesn't seem as if he has any growth. And uh, There's a lot of people in the movie and Mother who have growth, uh, at least the two main people, and he doesn't have any, and I think that has to do with how it is that he played the role. That's the way the character is written at the end of the day. Done. Okay. Uh, Robert, we are going to start with you for your one-minute closing when you start talking. Bowman said a lot about how I'm making most about how it is that things are written, but I think actors do sort of integrate uh, 
how they believe they think the character should be. And I think Rob Morrow and Mother, even though there are different methods of how it is that he's supposed to be within the movie, he plays it all very similarly. And he feels like he's in a different movie in a lot of respects to the point that when he leaves, nothing's really changed. He really didn't actually even need to be in the movie because of how that goes. Penny Marshall, as the Albert Brooks's celebrity cameo friend, does her job. And I think she does it well enough that he does feel slighted. He does feel as if he came in for no good reason. And she does move him along in the story to get to the point where he takes that appointment. So I'm not really sure what it is that she didn't do. And she's sarcastic and biting as she's supposed to be. So it seems like she sort of did her job. And I don't think Rob Morrow actually did. I think he sort of failed. And that's why he was gone. All right. Move over to Boatman for his one minute closing when he starts talking. Again, you're saying, oh, well, he didn't even need to be in the movie. That's a problem with the writing of the character. You keep bringing up points that have nothing to do with the actual performance. That's about the writing of the character. Penny Marshall is actually really well written. I think her line about, oh, if I want to see your range, I'll just watch the in-laws again. That's a funny line. It is a well-written line. The problem is the way she delivers it is so slow and stilted and awkward. It doesn't work. She's not playing it as sarcastic. It doesn't come off as sarcastic. It comes off as very unprofessional. Rob Morrow like his performance or don't, or like the character or don't, his performance is exactly the way that character should be within the film. That's the thing. That character is written as whiny and kind of the same through all out, and Morrow plays it to a T. It is exactly how that character is written. Penny Marshall hurts the script. Rob Morrow plays to the script. Okay. Bring in the judges. <clears throat> good judges. I'm good. Okay. Um, I'm going to kick this off. I went with Caleb. I thought this was close. Um, and I think part of that has to do with I, I haven't seen either of these movies, so I, I don't know. Um, I but based off of what I was given, I think I think Caleb was honestly kind of fighting an uphill battle because I thought Robert's like point about like, well, she's only in the movie for like a quick moment. It's a cameo almost, uh, even though it was accepted. It's just a shorter performance, and she does what she needs to do. But by the end, I thought Caleb convinced me why. The things that Robert was saying against Morrow, like he's the same, um, he wouldn't even really need be missed if he wasn't there. Caleb had convinced me why those things were like part of the movie and why Morrow was playing that to perfection. I thought that his final line there of like is playing to the script, uh, Marshall is playing against the script and actually hurting bad a, a scene that would be good with another person i think i think that was strong so i went with caleb but i thought it was close i thought robert did a really good job so uh brian um after the first section of the debate um i thought you know caleb actually kind of hit it on the head what i was thinking was that you know um robert was talking a lot about you know this character doesn't have growth or this character you know was wasted they could have done so much more with this character and how that was not about the performance so much as the character and, and the story um Later in the debate after that, though, I mean, Robert, I thought, 
did a pretty good job of trying to redirect his his approach. Um, he made a really good point at the end when he was talking about how Penny Marshall did her job. She came on and just basically did her cameo thing, whereas Rob Marshall did not do his job. But I don't think he did quite enough to come back from the early stuff. Sorry, Caleb. Okay. Uh, Kirk, your vote doesn't count. Where would you have gone and why? Um, yeah, I also went with Boatman. Um, having not seen either of these movies, he just did more to convince nope. me that uh, Penny Marshall was more detrimental to what was given to her than uh, the, the other character was. Um, he had specific examples. I think it was just one of those situations of, uh, you know, a fighter just knowing his category so well in and out and being able to kind of overwhelm with information. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to move on to question number two, which is in the category of the MCU. This question was drafted by Robert. The question is, who is the new I'm sorry, who is the best new character from Phase 4 of the MCU? Uh, so, Robert, you get to kick this one off. You have one minute to open your argument when you start talking. I think being the best new character means, even though you're not the person who's the movie supposed to be the focus on, you basically steal every scene that you're in. And in my opinion, the best person who does that, especially in Phase 4, is Yelena from Black Widow. Um, you end up feeling more for her as the baby sister in this arranged family who's removed from her home so young than anybody else within the movie. Uh, it's heartbreaking during the beginning. She's this six-year-old girl. She gets dropped into the situation. She gets left behind, and Tasha becomes an Avenger. Not only beyond the emotional crux of the movie, she's the funniest character. Every scene, even against heavy hitters, everything is drawn to her. In her fight scenes, you get the impression that she could kill Natasha if she really wanted to. So she has badassery. She's funny. She's emotionally resonant. Um, the consequence of the Black Widow movie is that we got that post credit scene so that she could move on and be in Hawkeye. So in my opinion, it's no contest, Yelena, by a mile. Time. Okay. Uh, we are going to move over to Boatman. Boatman, you have one minute when you start talking. I want to stress that the question is best new character within the MCU. So a character that is new to the MCU and that character that is new to the MCU is Peter Parker 3 or Andrew Garfield. It might be Peter 2, but whatever they call him. Andrew Garfield. He is 3. Uh, Andrew Garfield is so good and gets so much more emotion and more to do in this one than he ever has before. He, as a new character, even if you've never seen a Garfield movie, everything that gets set up, you could argue, oh, the Gwen Stacy fall, you need to see that. No, because they accurately convey it and the way Garfield portrays that, it feels so heartbreaking, you don't need that. And then you get the emotional pull of him saving MJ. It is such a perfect thing. Yelena... It's not that interesting. I'm sorry. She doesn't get that much to do. She just is kind of new Black Widow. She's not more interesting or get anything to do more than Black Widow. Ultimately, Garfield has so much to do here. Time. Okay. Peter, th Peter 3 uh, versus Yelena. Uh, Five-minute freeform when one of you starts talking. Well, I'm going to start, if that's cool. Um, so I think what your basis of your argument, yes, I'm not going to argue about that, you know, Peter Parker 3, Spider-Man, Andrew Garfield was in other things, and thus it's a weird argument. I'm not going to argue against that. What I'm going to say is that a lot of people enjoyed that, or they felt like there was a lot of redemption from what had happened in previous Amazing Spider-Man movies going to this, and 
you talked about how he had much more to do, but I think there's a lot of good Peter Parker Spider-Man stuff in those amazing Spider-Man movies, especially with the Gwen Stacy thing that you sort of brushed over, that I actually don't think he's necessarily needed in this movie at all. And I think a lot of the emotional work is done on the back of Tom Holland and everything that happens from the Mysterio reveal. So even if Andrew Garfield wasn't in it, it wouldn't matter. But I think Yelena, there's no real Black Widow movie without Yelena because she's the one who starts uh, what happens with the Black Widows being under my control and, and sets the course of the entire thing. So it's just okay. something that I think isn't the, the most you know, sound argument because of what had happened before. Ultimately, Garfield, I mean, if we want to talk about other things, Yelena doesn't get good until Hawkeye. So you need a whole TV show that doesn't even count here in order to make that argument. But if we're talking about other things playing to play, no, exactly everything that is given to us in No Way Home is exactly what Garfield needs. We don't need any of the backstory. You can go in with this being your first introduction to Garfield's Spider-Man. Ultimately, like I said, the way he talks about uh, Gwen's death in this movie is so powerful and emotional that it works and you don't even need to have seen it. Ultimately, Yelena is such, it's Black Widow 2. I'm sorry, Yelena is Black Widow 2. Florence Pugh isn't doing anything interesting. She's just kind of a, a blank face. It's ultimately, it's Black Widow 2. It's the same character, but new. That's crazy because Yelena is by far funnier than Black Widow could ever hope to be. And that, crux of that taken into Hawkeye is, is built on what happens here in Black Widow with the posing stuff and the idea of the pockets that she gives her that and that comes out uh, later on in the what happens in Infinity War we see that there but I think you're belittling her performance a bit as it relates to Andrew Garfield though I mean he doesn't even show up till there's an hour left in the movie and there's a lot of emotional things that have happened a lot of turns in the first two acts that don't rely on him whatsoever and I mean Honestly, he comes off as the most self-loathing, and I think there's a lot of heavy-handedness with how they try to handle him because they're trying to do this redemption thing that they really didn't even need. And honestly, you could even say he's the worst of the Peter Parkers if you wanted to because a lot of people like how it is that Tom Holland plays all the way through that movie and how uh, Tobey Maguire gets a chance to come back after so much time and it's like he never left. I, I, I Tobey arguments toby gets to come back and just do the same toby thing and that's all he's doing like that's not a point here it's just oh toby came back and some people like toby mcguire more he doesn't do anything to actively improve on the character i don't know why you're bringing up the self-loathing argument because i think that's what makes the character so good is that this is a character who can do these incredible things but is really down on himself and has these confidence issues and I, I think that is such an interesting aspect of a character that we don't really get to see. Ultimately, Yelena, you had to bring up Hawkeye again, and you're bringing up the comedy aspect. Red Guardian is the funnest, funniest character in that movie. I don't know what we're doing here. Red Guardian gets the best lines. Yelena doesn't get anything. If we're talking, oh, she's funnier than Black Widow, Black Widow gets a lot of funny lines, The scene, a lot of funny scenes and lines. I love the scene where in the first Avengers where she's, like, doing the interrogation and her delivery on, oh, yeah, this, this asshole's giving me everything. It's such a great moment. I mean... Yelena does get the joke about the ripping out the, the reproductive organs and talking about fallopian tubes, which is pretty funny, yeah. and uh, what happens at the dinner table, and, and all those different things that do have a lot of comedy work within it. Uh, I'm bringing up Hawkeye just because it's a through line, and it also bears to mention that she's 
one of only two new characters who gets to appear more than once and new people actually want to see in different things. And, you know, honestly, she's the only one who technically helps drive two stories where I don't even think Andrew Garfield necessarily helps drive this. He's just sort of there as a, as a cherry on top, but I mean, there's even more interesting characters beyond him that aren't the Spider-Man like Norman Osborn in that movie. So honestly, Andrew Garfield can get lost in what's going on there. If you wanted to pick Norman Osborn, you could have picked Norman Osborn. Ultimately, not, uh, Yelena, saying, ultimately, Yelena, yours also just quick question. What's the other thing that Yelena is in? You said she's Hawkeye. in two things. She's in Hawkeye. No, that's she's a TV Hawkeye. show. That's not a point. That phase is a four and show. this is part of phase four. I know it's time. <laughs> All right. Uh, we are going to start with Boatman. One minute when you start talking. Robert has to put other things into its argument about the TV show, which does not count here just for the clarification, because Jelena doesn't actually work in Black Widow. That's the problem. Garfield works on his own despite having stuff in the past. Jelena needs Hawkeye to work, and Hawkeye doesn't count. That's why Robert had to use Hawkeye as its argument. He said, oh, she's the only new character we've seen in two things. No, she isn't, unless you're counting the TV show. So ultimately, the crux of Robert's argument is built around Hawkeye. The crux of my argument is built around a character with actual emotion, a character who gets real resolution within the context of his movie. He gets so much, he might have little screen time, but he does everything with that little bit of screen time, whereas Yelena does not get that much to actually be as a personality. She might be necessary to the plot, but ultimately that's the plot as an actual character, a human being. Yelena doesn't work. Time. Okay, Robert, we will move over to you. One minute when you start talking. It's funny Boatman mentions that he thinks I said Hawkeye was the crux of my argument when I was just bringing it up as an additional thing. I mentioned that in Black Widow, she is the heart, she's the comedy, she is the soul. She's really the only thing that truly stands out in a mediocre movie, and she doesn't get to do anything. She kills the main villain in General Dracoff uh, because, you know, it was trusted for her in the movie to have that moment, and she does. Uh, Andrew Garfield in No Way Home, he can get brought to the sidelines a little bit. How much different is he as a character, especially in those emotionally weighty scenes like on the rooftop, than Tobey Maguire's Peter Parker? He's It's virtually the same backstory. He just has a dead girlfriend. Uh, even you could say things like, you know, it doesn't really matter what it is that we're talking about in regards to Hawkeye. Elena in Black Widow, it's heartbreaking from beginning to end, but she does what she can. She feels slighted. She feels pain. You feel the pain for her, but you also laugh with her because she has a lot of good lines. She delivers them well. Florence Pugh is a wonderful actress, and it all comes to the surface as she plays that character. Okay. I'm going to bring in El Judgeritos. Can I have a question? Yes, sir. What is the best? Who is the best new character from Phase Four of the MCU? Okay. Uh, I gotta go first, huh? You do, my friend. Yes. Dang it. <laughs> Okay. 
All right, Kirk. Okay, I'm ready. Okay, this was super tight for me. Um, And it's equal because anybody who knows me knows these are two characters I really don't care about at all. Um, So um, I was not excited about seeing either of these in the movie necessarily. Um, But um, I think they both gave... For a long time, we were arguing about most important, and they kind of course-corrected, and we were going around. So a lot of things to consider. Um, I obviously disagree very much with Robert that it's a great performance and she's a good actress. I also disagree with Boatman that uh, she goes to this movie with a blank face. She goes to the movie with a frowny face because that's the one face she has. Uh, but ultimately, by here, I did give it to Robert. Um, I think he just had a little bit more about um, how uh, Garfield does kind of get lost and... Um, Elena had more on her shoulders and had more to do in this movie. Uh, so even though I, I threw up the TV argument, I think they both talked about that too much. But um, like I said, by the slightest of margins, uh, 49-51, it goes to Robert. What if John Cazale had played Elena? Oh, well, then, yeah, definitely. <laughs> run, no question. All right, I'll go next. Um, yeah, I thought this was really close as well. Um, there was something, though, that like um, I, 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 I did message in the middle of the thing. I was like, did I hear this right? Or did I hear this wrong? And um, I believe if I, I, I might have to go back and check the tape, but I'm pretty sure Caleb Boatman is the one who brought up Hawkeye first before Robert Tester. <laughs> and then he continued to use that as a, as a driving force against Robert. So I thought that was weird, but um, that being said, oh, neither of these are the choices I, I would have picked for the question, but I think mm-hmm. they're both, very good choices. Uh, I'm not like Kirk. I like these performances and I like these movies and these characters. Um, and I know Brian does too a lot. So I'm sorry. I'm rambling. I'm trying to collect all my thoughts. I went with Robert. Um, I thought that when it came to best character, Robert did a really good job of explaining all of the things. That, and, and, and Boatman did this too, but I think Robert, just like Kirk said by a hair, of all of the great things that this character gets to do that we're going to get to see them do more and set up. And even if you take the, um, the Hawkeye TV show out of it, she's literally given the post credit scene of the movie to set up something new for fans. Um, And I thought that his hit on Boatman about um, there's like McGuire is basically doing the same exact thing he's doing as that Garfield's doing. And even green goblin is a, is a more interesting character. I don't think that necessarily means that Robert had to take green goblin in order for it to disqualify Garfield. Like he could have picked Chang Chi or, you know, Ling or something too. So um, I went with Robert, uh, Brian, uh, where are you voting? Yeah. Um, as opposed to the first question where I hadn't seen either movie. So I'm going, you know, by the debate, this, this question, I've seen both of them. I like both of them. So, I mean, while I am being impartial listening to the debate, I do have my own you know, thoughts on the movies that they have to kind of play against. And um, honestly, I, I, I voted for Robert as well. Um, mainly because I think that uh, Boatman didn't do a good enough job to convince me how Adam, uh, Andrew Garfield's Peter Parker works without the previous stuff. I think that if you looked at just this, if somebody did come in brand new to this, yes, they'd know he'd lost someone and he got to save someone redeem himself. It's not quite the same as seeing him, you know, her falling the same way and him saving her the exact same way. It's like exact moment that he just got to redeem himself and things like that, that I think you do need to have seen the previous movies. Whereas I don't think you need Hawkeye to, to appreciate Elena. Okay. 
Fair enough. So uh, we are tied one to one as we get into the next uh, question, uh, which is going to be uh, in the category of Disney animation. This was drafted by Boatman. The question is, which pre-1980s Disney animated movie would be the worst to translate to live action? All right, Boatman, you get to go first. One minute when you start talking. Uh, my pick for this is Saludos Amigos. I think that this is a film that is not a film. It's barely a film. It counts as a film, but it it's just a grouping of segments. I don't know how you make this a live action. There's a, a weird segment of a paintbrush painting a scenery, and the animation comes to life there. Uh, you've got a segment about a plane named Pedro who... It's just about Pedro delivering letters. Nothing happens. There is nothing in this movie that happens. You couldn't make this a live action movie. It wouldn't work. There is nothing here that would translate well to live action because A, it's so dependent on the animation that ultimately if you tried to translate to live action, it would A, look weird. B, it wouldn't make any sense because so many of these segments are about the animators drawing what they see in uh, Brazil and other parts of Latin America. Okay. All right. We move over to Robert for his one-minute opening when he starts talking. In the current day of the Chippendale Rescue Rangers remake that we had, I was looking at Saludos Amigos and I was thinking some sort of anthology, Roger Rabbit-like hybridization, human CGI Hollywood studios running out of ideas domestically. They go to a trip to other regions of the globe to further other, understand other societies, what it is that they watch, and how they tap into international markets, maybe introducing some of the an animation stuff drawing, kind of similar to what you'd see in like a Mary Poppins with the chalk drawings in the chalk world. I chose the Aristocats, and I based this off the fact that we've had a lot of Disney Live adaptations recently we're basing the whole of the character grouping around animals and they tend to be unexpressive computer generated entities that lack heart and take audiences out of the enjoyment of the viewing experience and there's a large focus on the aristocats where animals are singing and dancing and can you imagine how realistic that would be to transition from animation to that i can't imagine it that's why i picked it because it seems like it would be terrible all right i'm in a free form when one of you starts talking Ultimately, there's nothing, you're not making Saludos Amigos if you're not taking the actual segments in Saludos Amigos. There's nothing in those segments that would actually work as a film because Saludos Amigos at itself is barely a film. The Aristocats, ultimately you're saying, oh, the animal, you know, adaptations don't work. Are we going to pretend the Jungle Book didn't happen? If you get a good director and a good visual effects team that has the time to work on it, absolutely the Aristocats can work. Ultimately, uh, Saludos Amigos is barely a movie. It's a series of segments. Yeah, but you've been able to take things that could be segmented and make them into an anthology movie. Maybe it's an adventure series, Saludos Amigos, and a title into a different place, and then you include some of the animation in that. They go to different regions and they explore uh, aspects of different cultures, which I thought was somewhat of the point of going through Saludos Amigos, getting an appreciation for the Latin American culture, which I think sort of plays into something as we move along to be more culturally sensitive. I will say that um, even though, you know, Aristocats is like a movie, um, you can't sweep under the rug. There's a lot of 
horribly offensive things that are in the Aristocats that, um, you know, they were available in the original. If you try to remake it and there's... Besides the one thing during Everybody Wants to Be a Cat, what is there? I'm sorry. Can you repeat? I, I missed what... Besides the awful thing and Everybody Wants to Be a Cat, what is there? I mean... You can just take that out. That's no, I mean, yeah, those horrific depictions are not just in Everybody Wants to Be... They're in the end part of the climax when they rescue. Okay. The take that character out. You can take that character out of the movie. Okay. Ultimately, ultimately that doesn't affect the movie because that character's in that movie for about five minutes. It is as insignificant character to the movie. It doesn't change the core of the Aristocats. You're trying to change the core of what Saludos Amigos even is. You want to make it an adventure movie. That's not Saludos Amigos. Call it under a different name. That's not an adventure story whatsoever. Ultimately, you're just completely just taking the title and changing everything. Ultimately, you can still do the core story of the Aristocats. Uh, O'Malley is a great character. Duchess is a great character. The kids are a lot of fun. You can do that as a movie. I don't really think the, all those characters are great characters. I think especially the female depictions are pretty one note and pretty of the pre eighties Disney era where they didn't really have strong female characters. Every female character was seemingly reliant on the male characters to move them along and to, to help them out. I mean, Duchess without O'Malley would have just sort of stuck under a bridge with her cats and probably died without him. So I don't really think all those characters are particularly strong um, there's a lot of shared DNA with movies that have sort of already happened. There's really no logical reason to retread something that the Aristocats is frankly worse at and uh, on tires that are already bald and something that's already done. What you're talking about with Duchess is just plain not true. Duchess actually is one of the more interesting female characters in Disney. A lot of the early female characters are just whiny or they don't do anything. Duchess has to be strong for her kids when they're in when she's in this very like dark environment of being losing from their home and she's not like yes O'Malley points her in the right direction but she's not useless without O'Malley she could have found really it's Abigail and Amelia, Amelia Adelaide and Amelia two female characters who actually point O'Malley in the right direction so your point about that is also incorrect the only reason they were pointed in the wrong direction is because Marie fell off the I mean, O'Malley was getting them in the right direction. Marie fell off and went into the water, and he saved her, which is another aspect of a you know female character. He saved a child. Oh no! But I'm saying that you're saying that he didn't know where he was going, and he absolutely was. There's just something in the plot that tried to go against him. I think Saludos Amigos is on the whole kind of in, supposed to be an educational movie because they're supposed to learn about a lot of things, and I think. Uh, everybody, especially lately, has sort of been more insulated with the pandemic. So I think Saludos Amigos is a nice opportunity to open things up to people, an audience about the wonders of life outside of kind of our standard day-to-day -day stuff. And An educational I, movie in 2022? No, just something that we educate about, like how Amer we're very America-centric, but we can go out and we can see the influences of other things in America. And I think people have forgotten that, especially now in these times. And I think there's a lot of fairy tale, um, the, the story of the Three Planes, there's a lot of fairy tale influence in that. And I mean, Disney takes a lot of fairy tale influences to make there's a lot of There's nothing fairy tale about the story of the Three Planes. I don't I really understand what you're talking about here. It has a kind of like a Three Bears situation. There's Mama daddy and, and the baby bear and they That's because there's a mom a dad and a um, child all right robert we're gonna start with you one minute closing when you start talking 
I think movies can be rife for an update and they can still have the themes and the feelings of that movie and but they can have go in a different direction they rebooted remade and that's what I think you can do with Saludos Amigos it can be an opportunity to teach people move us out of our US centric ways of thinking and think about impact of culture and employ some of this animation into live action like I said Chippendale Rescue Rangers was able to do that why can we do that with the Saludos Amigos the Aristocats I think it's just something that's been done too much. And when it has been done, it's been done in a horrific way. You add in the idea of a big part of that movie is that they're singing and animals playing musical instruments. And when you try to do that, and you think you could try to do that and relay it into a live action format, it gets a little muddled. Nobody gave a crap about Lady and the Tramp, for instance. Uh, all these things sort of apply that we don't really need um, a live action version. And if you want a movie where the butler perpetrated the crime, watch Clue. It's a better movie. Time. Okay. Uh, we will go over to Boatman for his one minute closing when he starts talking. I don't know where the Clue argument comes into because the butler did it is one of the most common tropes in all of literature and media. So that's a non sequitur. Ultimately, you're also talking about uh, visual effects and animals. Ultimately, again, Jungle Book, Jungle Book, Jungle Book. He never took down Jungle Book because that was an example. There are animals singing Jungle Book. You got Baloo, you got King Louis singing in the Jungle Book remake. That works there. There's really good visual effects in Jungle Book to the point where Jungle Book won an Oscar. If you put that level of quality and energy into the Aristocats, you can actually make it better. And also, you can take out some of the offensive stuff that Robert was talking about uh, and improve on the Aristocats, whereas Saludos Amigos can't be improved on, upon because it doesn't work as a film. It's barely a film. The story about the three planes is boring. Nothing actually happens within that story. You have, sure, it's a mom, a dad, and a kid, but that doesn't mean it's a fairy tale. Ultimately, it's just about a plane delivering some packages. There's nothing interesting that actually happens. Time. Okay. All righty. I'm sorry, can yes. I get the question one more time on this one as well? <laughs> yes, you can. Is Cody uh, here? The question. Uh, which pre-1980s Disney animated movie would be the worst to translate to live action? Also, yes, I, I changed locations. Okay. Um, Hold on. Let's give me one second. Yeah, you're good. Calculate one more thing in my brain here. Okay. All right, Brian, you're going first. All right. First, I want to say that you both almost lost me to start invoking Clue as a good movie. Just saying. Uh, um, <laughs> but um, Caleb started off super strong. I mean, he talked about um, why uh, some of those movies couldn't make a good movie, how it was made of segments, how nothing happens, all these things. Um, but honestly, then Robert pitched me a movie that worked. He, he found an approach like how you could update this, how you could make it into a movie that could be interesting and what, what you could do with it to make it a more modern movie and do something with the story. So I give it to Robert. All right, Kirk. 
Yeah, um, this is another tough one for me. Uh, very, very close. I think they both had great arguments. I think they both, uh, you know, defended their movie well, well, or, you know, didn't defend their movie while supporting the other movie, however you want to phrase that. Um, but ultimately, I also went with Robert um, because I think the crux of Boatman's argument was that uh, his movie couldn't be remade. And I think by bringing it up, he put the remake on the table. So theoretically, we have to come up with some kind of remake. And I think Robert gave us enough ideas as to why um, the remake could happen and could work and would be a positive thing. So that's why, again, this was another 59-41 for me. But uh, I actually went with Caleb. Um, I thought that it also was close. I thought that Robert did a good job of explaining that, like, coming in here with a pitch for what a Saludos Amigos uh, movie would look like live action, I, I thought was really interesting and kind of the idea that he gave. Um, I was waiting. I was waiting for Robert to bring up, like, Alice in Wonderland, which is not a direct, like, people consider it a remake, but it's not a direct remake. It's almost a sequel that, like, these live action reboots, sequels, remakes can be more than just a carbon copy. But I thought Caleb actually did a good job of explaining to me, like, all of the things that Robert was bringing up as negatives for the Aristocats uh, of why it couldn't translate well. Boatman gave me plenty of reasons of why, well, just take that out, do this, and it will work. Uh, so I thought that went really well. But uh, that is why we have three judges. So Robert is up two to one as we get into the next question, which is going to be uh, in the category of sports. This was drafted by Robert and the question in sports is what is the best non-fandom football movie so Robert you get to kick this one off you have one minute when you start talking when I think of American football movies because again when I get into soccer throw that the hell out of there I want three things from my American football movie I want realistic football I want a good speech by a coach and I want trials and tribulations that are either overcome or that our protagonist team gets up to the line of overcoming, maybe they don't quite hit it. And that's why I chose the 1993 movie, The Program. I think there's a lot of cool aspects dealing with college teams. I don't think that's done necessarily as well. I think college, high school football sometimes have a leg up on movies that center around pro football. But either way, I think there's a lot of great football stuff in it. I think there's a central thing about the program being around football, whereas Boatman's movie, Heaven Can Wait, I think football is just sort of an aftermath thing. I know there's plot points of it, but I don't really feel like you get a lot of the football. And I think it's sort of lost in the background. And, you know, it could be a nice drama, but it's not really a football movie, in my opinion. I know it was accepted, but I think that sort of plays against Heaven Can Wait. Time. Okay. Uh, we'll bring in Caleb for his opening. One minute when you start talking. Well, uh, as Robert already introduced before I even got a chance to, my movie is Heaven Can Wait. Um, but I think that ultimately if the question was what is the best representation of football in a movie, even then I don't even think Robert's argument is correct. But that's what Robert's arguing right now is best representation of football in a movie. He's doing all these criteria. I'm arguing best football movie as in the best movie. And that is where I'm going with Heaven Can Wait, because Heaven Can Wait, you get a great performance from Warren Beatty. You do get a great speech by a coach within Jack Warden uh, talking about uh, talking to Warren Beatty, basically being like, kid, 
you're in this body. I know you were a great football player once, but this body isn't going to cut it. I think that's great. You do have some great football scenes towards the end with um, him with the uh, LA Rams. I think that ultimately, even though there's other stuff going on, the football stuff is great and the non-stuff is great. All right. Uh, shocking to nobody. I haven't seen either of these. So, well, yeah, can't win them all. Uh, five minute free form when one of you starts talking. But I mean, I'm going to push back on you a little bit. I honestly think Kevin Can Wait feels a bit dated to me with how the league stuff operates, uh, how it is that it sort of. I like there to be a prescient and a modernization with my football movies, and that movie sort of feels out of touch. Without it, it's actually. from the seventies, and it's I know, but the, football in the seventies. But there if are sports, a modern movie. Watch a modern movie. This is a movie from the seventies. There are sports movies that feel like they could be of a modern time, like a slap shot, for instance. But we'll get past the idea of when it is that this came out. Uh, I honestly <laughs> think there are parts in the remake, the the down to earth movie, that I actually think play a bit more into the what goes on in the plot in the scenario. I. Wish the movie was a bit funnier, given how sort of outrageous it is. I think it's a better direction for that story than how it is they try to play up the drama and the emotional aspects, which I think actually even fall flat. Even the uh, you know the the emotional crux of that movie being the relationship between Warren Beatty and uh, the woman who comes in, I it just doesn't really hit for me. So I think there are things in the program that actually emotionally sort of set stage and, and play a lot better than what happens in heaven can wait your movie undercuts itself you're talking about oh comedy and drama doesn't work have you seen the program ultimately the comedy undercuts the drama and the drama undercuts the comedy the goofy moment with the guy hitting his head on the glass window i don't even know if that was supposed to be funny or dramatic it just felt awkward ultimately the program is a movie that just feels so tonally confused that the two tones undercut each other. Craig Shefford doing like a bad Nicholson impression throughout the movie. Heaven can wait. I think you're talking like you're, there's some great moments here. I think you get some good comedy with Charles Grodin. You also get some really good emotional stuff towards the end, especially when he realizes he's inevitably going to die in this body is such a powerful scene. And you have Jack Warden who provides a lot of comedy being like, dude, this body's like 50 years old. You're not going to be able to play football in it. I think that heaven can wait bounces the comedy and the drama so much better than the program. We're both undercut each other. I don't think there's a lot of undercutting. Honestly, I think the best performance between the two movies that sort of marries comedy and drama a lot better than everything else that shows up in heaven can wait is, how James Kahn plays as the coach. You get a lot of emotional resonance with him, how he interacts with his players, with Alvin after his injury, with you know, given Joe and how he understands his background of recklessness. There's the pep talk he gives in the middle of the second half with Joe, where Joe doesn't have his legs under him and they need to beat Georgia Tech to get into the bowl game. And he makes it his personal mission to ensure Lafferty, who's the guy who you said didn't understand, you know, he didn't understand why it is that he was, you know, smashing his head on the windows or what that really meant, but it's because That's not what I said, but fair. You said it didn't really make sense and what was the I said the moment that? didn't work because I yeah. didn't know if it was supposed to be comedic or dramatic because it felt so goofy. It That's felt- what I'm talking about. Ultimately, you're bringing up another of the biggest problems in the movie, which is that 
there's way too many characters in this for us to actually care about any of them. There's so much balance of, oh, we've got the storyline with the football player falling in love with the tutor. We've got the alcoholism storyline. We've got the hyphen storyline. There's so much going on here that we don't actually get to connect with anyone because ultimately we don't spend enough time with anybody, and that's the biggest problem. Ultimately, with Heaven Can Wait, we connect to Warren Beatty. We like um, Mr. Jordan and how he kind of spiritually guides him. We like Jack Warden and how he, you know, athletically guides him. And the villains are a lot of fun in this, with Diane Cannon, who was nominated for an Oscar, and Charles Grodin. Um, I, I don't think there's that many characters. Usually when you have a football movie, I mean, it's a football team, and they really focus on four people, and some of the storylines you're talking about are married together and one character so I, I don't think there's too much that's spread out i think really the best emotional moment amongst all those movies is when coach winners and lafferty have that moment at the end when you know uh, lafferty makes that play and he comes in and he cries at james Conn's face because he knows that he cheated his way to do this and they have this sort of moment of acceptance i think honestly is like an undertone set piece for everything that happens or like an undertone piece for the movies. I think it's sort of the best one. What you were saying about the characters, uh, I don't really connect to anybody in Heaven Kuwait. I, I kind of feel like there's a lot of one note boring stuff that happens in that movie that doesn't... You don't connect to Warren Beatty, who is one of the most, like, he has so much going on because this is a guy who has basically been taken away from life too early and has been put in another body that is not built for him. And he is trying so hard to recapture his old life within this new body. You've got Jack Warden, who is kind of the heart of the movie, wanting to guide his friend while also knowing he doesn't have it. Time. All right, Boatman, you get to close first. You got one minute when you start talking. Ultimately, uh, one of the biggest problems with the program is that, sure, you got a lot of characters who don't really, that just takes away. But also, it's all cliches. It's all stuff we've seen a thousand times before in other football movies. We've seen it in Semi Tough. We've seen it in Wildcats. We've seen it in North Dallas 40. It's just that, oh, we put all the cliches into one movie. So hopefully you don't notice, but ultimately we notice. Heaven Can Wait actually gives us a different, interesting take on the football movie because of the afterlife elements. You've got Warren Beatty, who, again, is stuck between being in this body, falling in love with a woman, and also wanting to be a professional athlete, even though this body doesn't cut it. Uh, and I think that's such a great dynamic. You've got the people trying to kill him. You've got the emotional moments towards the end with him realizing his, he's in his friend's body. There's so much going on where the program is just cliche on cliche. Time. Okay. Let me move over to Robert for his one-minute closing. I think what Boatman mentions about the nuance of Heaven Can Wait is really front and center in the program. I think the relationships between um, Craig Sheffer and Chrissy Swanson's uh, characters, between Ray and Darnell and their dynamic as they're fighting over uh, Autumn. I think there's a lot of nuance in that that's, uh, that Boatman is sort of losing. I think everything is shot really well. Everything's choreographed great. There's a lot of dynamism within the program, which I think is lacking in Heaven Can Wait. Uh, there's weird stuff with the sound design and the music within that movie. Um, the funny parts don't really hit. I think there's a lot of uh, weirdness that happens, and I think it becomes more about a drama that just so happens that there's football, where I think the program is about a football team. And the interesting thing about the most nuanced thing is it's about the program. You know, there's characters in it, and there's a lot of heart. But honestly, after everything's done, 
the program just runs along. We get to the next thing. And that's the interesting part about the program as compared to every other football movie is we usually just care about the characters, but we care about sort of the life that's embodied with the program at ESU and how it's going to continue on even after we felt so much for not that many characters. Time. Okay. Oh boy. Okay. Um, oh no, I lost my marker. There it is. I'm not ready. Yeah, I'm not either. Um, and whatever happens, good debate, sir. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. It's my favorite sound to mix. Yeah. Okay. Can't take too much longer. I might change my answer for the fourth time. Yeah, right. <laughs> um Okay. <laughs> I honestly don't even know where to start with this. Um, oh, this is good. As all of these have been tonight, close, and at least one of us is sitting here going, I don't know, man. Um, like I said, I haven't seen either of these movies. Had to go off what everyone was saying. I was convinced by Robert uh, more that his movie was not only the better movie but the better football movie as well. While I think that Boatman did a good job of explaining um, that his movies got some things that are different for a football movie that adds some variety um, and that there's like a really strong performance from Warren Beatty. I just thought that Kastner did a really good job also explaining why you you just get more out of uh the program and that film more i don't know it was it was very close this was tough this was really tough this one was the hardest one for me so i went with robert brian yeah i changed my answer several times um uh, neither of these would have been my picks so but it was interesting hearing there hearing both of them pitch these um honestly i think that uh, uh, Robert definitely could have put it away for me if he had attacked a little bit more of the fact that you know his is the better is the better football movie, whereas I think Heaven Can Wait is more of just a movie that kind of has football as a backdrop. Um, but he didn't really jump on that, and as a result, just as far as pitching the better movie, then at that point was yeah. okay. Kirk, uh, are we moving on or are we done? Um, yeah, I think um, I will. I will be one of those drama people. I went with Boatman as well. Um, I think Boatman, I mean, Caleb jumped right, you know, uh, Robert gave his, uh, you know, his, what he wanted out of a football movie and right in his introduction, Boatman had some of that for him. Uh, he hit the football stuff early on in this intro, really didn't talk about that much. And then there were certain times where he's saying, well, I didn't connect and things like that. And that's all a matter of opinion, but what he did it, I think Boatman, he gave him an opportunity to give, well, at least here are the things you can connect to. And I just think there was he, he came up with a little more depth, like Brian said, uh, when it became much more focused on just the movie. Um, Heaven Can Wait, I think the argument for that was much stronger. Okay, so we are moving on to the bonus round, my favorite. So uh, here's how this is going to work. 
uh, I am going to uh, say a category, uh, and then I'm going to let. So I'm going to let you guys know what the category is, and then I'm going to say the question from the category. So um, after I repeat, I'm going to say the question once, then I'm going to repeat it a second time. After I have repeated the question, you guys can then answer. So whoever says their answer first will be going first. Uh, you guys will get a 45 second. Um, to start and then a 30 second after your opponent's 45 seconds you can use your time however you want um any questions about how this is going to work no all right don't hate me hate the randomizer uh so uh the randomizer randomized from the world of war zone hmm. and the category is horror hmm. and the question is what is the most underrated horror film of the 2010s? So, most underrated horror film of the 2010s. One Cut of the Dead. Okay. I'll say The Visit. Okay. So, one cut of the dead versus the visit. All right. So, Boatman, you will be going first. Um, I will stay on screen for the entire time to give you guys your countdowns. Boatman, you may begin when you start talking. One Cut of the Dead is one of the best horror movies of the 2010s, period. The way that this film does it all in one take, doing the meta aspects of showing us a director shooting this zombie movie where we get the full one take of the zombie movie and then a zombie apocalypse actually happens where we get some great kills and a lot of great differentiation between the two aspects of the film is awesome. Uh, it's incredibly underrated. It made zero money. It ultimately, I've never seen uh, anyone really, uh, it didn't make a lot of money. No one really brings it up. Ultimately, it's a small little uh, foreign horror film and it's fantastic. It is so good. If you haven't seen it, do yourself a favor and watch it. Okay. Uh, Robert, 45 seconds when you start talking. I mean, just because you haven't heard anybody talk about it doesn't mean it wasn't a you know, a movie of consideration in Japan. And I mean, we've seen a lot of meta horror movies and a lot of zombie movies, especially lately that probably have done it better. But in the visit, we have something where we have uh, M. Night Shyamalan who had done a string of bad movies, but he's coming back uh, with, uh, with a film that wasn't really appreciated because then there were things that came after that had more importance in the grand scheme of the M. Night Shyamalan universe. But I think the performances of the grandparents are some of the creepiest things that I've ever seen. How it is that it's a slow sort of um, descent into madness. The, these kids that have no guardian to assist them, how they are sort of bound to this and they have no way out. It's terrifying. Time. Boatman, 30 seconds when you start talking. Your movie is by definition not underrated because it made $100 million. It made $100 million at the box office. It's ultimately one cut of the dead. Your argument is that it might have been more popular in Japan. It wasn't. It didn't make that much money. Ultimately, it's a, and it has meta aspects. It does the meta aspects better than any horror movie has, the way it weaves the two in. Ultimately, Visit also is just a lesser movie because Ed Oxenbold, and especially his cringy rapping, is terrible. Ed Oxenbold is genuinely bad in your film. One Cut of the Dead is a genuinely well-shot, great horror concept. Time. 
Robert, 30 seconds when you start talking. I don't think the amount of money a movie makes necessarily speaks to the entirety of what makes it underrated. I think how it is that it's considered at the time in comparison to other the director's other work, other work at that time. I think at Oxenbold, I mean, that's one aspect you mentioned the rapping. I think um, how it is that they play the hide and seek under the house, how it is that they think about pushing them in the oven. It's like a Hansel and Gretel uh, uh, fairy tale brought to life. It's terrifying. Zombie movies done dime a dozen. Time. <sighs> okay. Uh, you're going to go there, and you're going to go there, and there we go. All right, I'm ready. You guys ready? Yeah. yeah. Okay, a couple fact-checking things. Uh, the Visit made $100 million worldwide, not domestically. Uh, one Cut of the Dead uh, did make uh, $27 million, uh internationally. 99.8% of its box office came from uh, Japan or from overseas, not necessarily. And Robert didn't bring that up. I... Boatman? We already have our votes. I'm okay, just fair. pointing out other stuff. Fair, I didn't know that. I apologize. That's all I'm doing. Um, and I don't even remember what I was saying, so I'm just going to move on. Um, so I think that Boatman's opening was super strong where he because I had never heard of one cut of the dead. I definitely hadn't. So I think it definitely qualifies as an underrated film, a film that has a very interesting plot, really cool, interesting idea of a foreign film and like the, the one shot thing and him explaining the film. I thought he did a good job of talking about why just it, it wasn't seen by a ton of people. You don't hear a lot of people talking about it. Um, so I thought that was really strong and he kind of convinced me of why this is a great movie that I should see. Um, and then Robert came into it from a kind of different approach of like, hey, this is, you know, like The Visit is a movie where like you have M. Night Shyamalan kind of going back to a horror roots type thing where um, there's some genuinely very, very creepy moments. And it kind of got pushed to the wayside because of stuff like Split and Glass that came afterwards. So they both kind of came to it from different perspectives. Um, I'm also realizing now as I'm talking, I wasn't supposed to go first, so sorry. Uh, but at the end of the day, I went with Robert. I went with RC Cola. Um, I thought that, like I said, all, all of those things, I think I thought it was really close. And I thought that at the end, Robert just convinced me of why this, this movie was just more underrated, not only as part of M. Night Shyamalan's films but also just like horror in the 2010s um so yeah it was close though uh who was i supposed to go to first? kirk should have gone first i'll let him go next kirk you can go okay um i feel bad for these guys because i know this isn't necessarily a category either of them wanted for speed no round. and that's why when i and, when i randomized it i yeah. felt so bad <laughs> and an underrated overrated is the hardest thing to argue like even in a prep round let alone a speed round um, so I did not envy them that. Um, and yeah, they both picked uh, good movies um, for, for the question. Um, but ultimately, I went with Boatman. 
I think Boatman did more to – I mean, I, I think they both focused on too much on just their movie being good and why it's good. But I don't think Caster gave me – other than the stuff about Shyamalan at the beginning, which he kind of trailed off on, I don't think he gave me enough as to why it was the most underrated. Uh, I know money is not a factor, but, it, you know, Caleb hit a – you know, underseen money, Caleb hit more factors on what made it underrated. So that's why I went with him. Okay. And uh, Brian? You are deciding this. Who is moving on? Yeah, for me, it was close all the way to the end. Um, honestly, uh, what swung me was one line in the closing uh, when Robert uh, said that, uh, you know, just the amount of money something makes or, or his popularity doesn't necessarily mean underrated. That's It may be underseen, things like that, but I don't, I don't consider that really the same thing. Um, whereas most people, actually, I think everybody I know that has seen One Cut of the Dead considers it a great movie. So I went with Robert. Okay, which means your winner, Robert Kastner. Uh, so we are going to start by talking to Caleb. Caleb, uh, this was probably the closest <laughs> match of fan zone we've had in a hot minute. Uh, it lived up to your last match of like a knockout where, you know, I think on the first couple of questions, it was like clear the whole way. And then all of a sudden, like it, it was split on the last few and that that was nuts uh how are you feeling about the match fine i mean i i didn't put much effort into this so like yeah okay uh if you come back next when do, who do you want to play uh give me richard schwartz actually no i don't know if he's the same record as me give me andrew barr Ooh, let me look while I still have you on screen. Um, you you don't have the same record, but the records kind of match up. So I think we can make that work. We'll see what okay. we can do. Uh, great job today, Boatman. Uh, we're going to move on over to Robert. Robert, uh, congrats. You are moving. Oh, and I accidentally took you out when I hit my hand down on the pad. Um, you're moving on. You're in a number one contenders match against uh, somebody. We'll talk about that soon. Um, how are you feeling about the match today? Very close match all the way through. I'm not uh, ashamed to admit that I did put a lot of work into this uh, because I care about things, especially when I'm going up against a mind, uh, a cinematic mind like Boatman's. I respect him a lot. I, this is the most I've ever talked around or at Boatman. Uh, so I don't know if he actually you know, respects me in, in my movie ways at all. But even if he doesn't, I'm happy with how this went. Uh, honestly, uh, when when we got to football, I was I, I told my wife when I was doing, I was like, "There's no way I lose the football. There's no way. I have so many points. There's no way." And then when I lost the football, and I was like, "Uh oh, this is bad." Fortunately, it was the last one, so I could recover. Uh, no, this is great. I didn't get to say the line that uh, "Heaven Can Wait" was super unrealistic because the Rams beat the Steelers in the '70s, which never would have happened anyway. But which would have tickled Kirk's funny. I don't know if it would have got me the point, but at least it would have tickled Kirk's funny. But uh, no, this was very nerve-wracking. I drank like two gallons of water here as we were going through this. Um, I'm just happy that I get to share this time with you guys. I know it's late. Uh, thank you for giving me the opportunity to long-form debate with you all because uh, I'm, I'm proud of how this went. Yeah. Uh, so you are moving on to the contender match. You will be playing Cody Newberry. Uh, he beat uh, Richard Schwartz to get here. Uh, so he that is who you are facing now. So it is the two rookies uh, coming in 
uh, to play uh, for a shot at uh, Kirk. So uh, what do you think about playing uh, Cody? Do you think you got a shot? Uh, I will say that Cody and I probably differ very heavily in how it is that we will approach these debates, which is a fun thing to think about. I think it will be entertaining. Um, I have not had a chance to watch Cody debate, so I will take the chance to do that. Uh, I would think I would have a shot. I think beating Bowman, you know, helps sort of put me on a level that, you know, I could maybe contend, Absolutely. but uh, I'm looking forward to it either way. It's fun. Nonetheless. Yeah. All right. So, um, very exciting. I think both you and Cody are now two and O oh with a knockout. So that's, that's pretty interesting going into this match. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, Robert, great job today. And, uh, let's get final thoughts from Kirk. Uh, this was tough because I mean Robert definitely earned it, but it's I hate to see somebody lose when it's that close. Like every time I voted for Robert, I could have voted for you know Boatman was close, uh, but I mean vice versa too. So I mean it could have went either way most most, most rounds. So um, they both played great. Um, Boatman, you know, like I said, it just I I, I think I, I I was pretty confident in him in that speed round. So. Uh, but like you said, that's why there's three judges, and um, it, it played how it did. But I think Boatman will be back, and he'll do well. Um, and Cody versus Robert is going to be a very interesting match. Yeah. Brian, final thoughts from you. Yeah, I mean, this is probably one of the closest ones that I've judged. Uh, I had, like, one round pretty clear for me each way, but then the last two were, I, like I said, toss-ups. I was going back and forth the entire time. So that's what we like to see here. Keep it close. Keep it fun. Yeah, absolutely. So that's going to do it for us at Fan Zone Debate today. Uh, tune in in two weeks' time to see that number one contenders match between Cody and Boatman. Also, other stuff coming up. We got Mike Hanley playing Joe Farrelly. That should be a very fun match. And then before you know it, we're at Mayhem at the Multiplex four yes it's the fourth one i had to think about that for a second so uh we will see you guys really soon with the next match thank you to boatman thank you to robert and uh thank you to you guys for judging we'll see you real soon with the next match bye-bye there we go thank you very much please come again we have a lot more groceries